We're gonna touch the dove on this next one. We're gonna touch that sweet flaming dove. It's gonna be good. I hope. I hope you can all touch the dove in your own way tonight. Greetings from American Exception. I am Aaron Good. This is the first part of a short series we are doing on Jim Hogan's seminal masterpiece, Secret Agenda, Watergate, Deep Throat, and the CIA. The plan was initially to record a conversation between Jim Hogan himself, Peter Dell Scott, and me. But unfortunately, Peter has gotten COVID, so we had to postpone this until he recovers. Peter and I talked about Watergate during some of our oral history episodes and in our episode with Peter and Dan Ellsberg uh, that we did recently. During this time, Peter went back and he reread Secret Agenda after we'd been talking about certain aspects of the case. His enthusiasm was, as ever, inspiring. He told me that Secret Agenda is a treasure trove of information. Keep in mind that Peter cited the book at least as far back as Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, which came out in 1993. So this is an example of how much material is actually in Secret Agenda. It's really something. Anyway, I then reached out to Jim Hogan and asked him if he would be up for meeting with us to discuss his book and Watergate in general. He graciously agreed, and we had one preliminary Zoom discussion with the three of us where Peter seemed pretty under the weather. It turned out that it was COVID, so here we are. I myself am feeling pretty overwhelmed at the moment, but in a mostly cool way. I'm running the podcast and doing some other exciting things, which you will see in the very near future. Uh, I'm not sure it was totally wise to go down the Watergate rabbit hole right as I'm juggling these things and doing the series on the book as well, but so it goes. This isn't the first time. Uh, one summer, probably 2018, I intended to just summarize Watergate for my dissertation as part of my chapters on the history of the rise of the deep state, but I couldn't stop reading and researching and writing about it, and eventually it became a whole uh, massive standalone chapter, a case study, essentially, and now I expanded that into two chapters and expanded it and split it up into two chapters, and uh, I now think it's one of the best parts of the book, for what that's worth. For these episodes that we're doing here on Watergate, I'm going to draw less from my own writing and more on Hogan and Scott. Don't worry, we will still cover my Watergate chapters with Ben Norton and Seamus McGinnis when the time comes. Meantime, I'm going to go over some Watergate secret agenda summary and details. I thought I just uh, should put these out myself, but Seamus McGinnis offered to join me, so I have to thank him for that. As I said, Jim has been very gracious throughout, Jim Hogan, uh, even sending Peter and I a very useful Watergate timeline over email, which Peter added to and which I have added to as well. And I'm confident that in the not-too-distant future, we will have that Watergate discussion with Jim Hogan and Peter Dale Scott, the two men who, for my money, have done the most to illuminate the mysteries of Watergate over the years. In the meantime, I hope that in addition to being interesting in their own right, these primer episodes will better prepare listeners for both the upcoming Hogan-Scott discussion and the Empire and the Deep State series episodes, which will cover Watergate.
Seamus McGinnis, thanks for joining us today. As always, great to be here. So you are younger than me, and that means that you have more recently been through high school and college, uh, where you had Watergate come up at some point. I hope so. Um, what what uh, based on your re- recollections of you know history classes and so on, can you give me a can you give for me in the audience a generic? recap of like of Watergate and the conventional uh, myth or, or the conventional story of Watergate? Well, when you talk to people who are, you know, 20, 22, 25, as I am, where uh, people who maybe have memories of 9-11 usually are born after. And, uh, you know, generally, it's just not in the public consciousness anymore. Uh, Watergate is just sort of this nebulous story about Nixon resigning and there was uh, maybe maybe there's a break in. That's about it. Uh, personally, I remember we watched all the president's men in uh, the middle of high school for journalism class, uh, kind of the the form like the formative myth of of the heroic journalist in America, uh, pretty much since then. And so I think th- that's very that can inform your understanding of the media today because so many people just sort of fancy themselves a uh to be some sort of Woodward or Bernstein nowadays. I think that we saw a lot of that in the Trump era. Um, but broadly the you know, the story just goes there was uh there's a break in and then there's some kind of leak. You have deep throat, we don't know who it is. Woodward and Bernstein are the heroic journalists, they come through, they they are able to put out the story. And it leads to the collapse of the Nixon administration. He sort of implodes by, you know, firing the wrong people at the wrong time. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk of that again in the Trump administration of of uh, like, oh, mass firings when he when he fired uh, Jim Comey and everything. Uh, so really, it's only come up as a mainstream narrative as a sort of reference point for other events. And obviously, everything now gets gate put onto the end of it uh, for that reason, too. But yeah, generally, it's just this very surface level story. And, and, you know, I think as we'll get into, like, there's a very specific reason that that happens, because the more that you leave it as this top down command structure, and it's Nixon at the heart of it, and it's him morally debasing the White House, that is sort of the the core theme of the whole thing. So uh, now, having read Secret Agenda, which we're talking about today, and, and Jim Hogan's work, and of course, Peter Dale Scott's work on this, uh, as well as the parts of your book on it, um, there's a much broader understanding of it, and it goes a, a lot deeper, of course. So if we could just kind of start out here, uh, if you want to lay out just sort of a deep political chronology of Watergate that can show us uh, better than the mainstream version how all of this played out. Yeah, I think that that's a important thing to do. And for me personally, going back and putting together a timeline was very helpful. There are Watergate timelines out there, and those are kind of useful because the the more famous or infamous events that would be covered in a generic Watergate timeline are important points to include on all of this. I also had the benefit of having a timeline that Jim Hogan uh, sent to me, Jim himself, recently, and then Peter Dale Scott added to it for our conversation that we've postponed. Um, and so I used that as a baseline and wanted to add a little bit to it. Additionally, I, I, I just want to say beforehand, the reason why uh, 
some reasons why it's so important to look at Watergate is that there are many um, there are many paradoxes in Watergate. Like it's perceived as a victory of liberals and the left over a you know conservative administration that was too very bellicose and warlike and you know extended the Vietnam War and so on. Um, but then you have to explain things like when Noam Chomsky says Richard Nixon was the last liberal president, for example. Or I heard Peter Dale Scott say years ago, <clears throat> if memory serves, that Nixon was the last president who had any kind of Christian concern for the poor. And uh, in terms of his policies, I'm not sure if that's it was exactly the quote from Peter. I could be misremembering it. And you would think that Car Jimmy Carter might have, be someone you could say that about. But either way, I, I think that it's actually it's fair to say that about Nixon, whether he was the last one or not. He's a he was an interesting person uh, in his humble background and so on. He's really depicted pretty well, I think, in um in Oliver Stone's Nixon. And uh, I think that that's, that's a better treatment of Watergate than all the president's men by a mile, to be honest. Um, and, but also the other thing that you have to think about with Watergate is the aftermath of Watergate, which was a traumatic thing because it leads to a whole lot of CIA revelations, which you got to explain why that happened. And it leads to also a rightward shift in both political parties in the United States that we have uh, not ever reversed, really. Um, both parties become more right-wing after that, uh, and that is something that has to be explained because if it was a victory for liberal or left-wing forces, then you wouldn't expect that to happen. You would expect the right-wing to be discredited and the more you know, supposedly imperialist part of the American establishment to be discredited, but it didn't happen that way at all, and not even the CIA, which was suffering a little bit uh, after, after that, in terms of like you had uh, directors uh, fired, you had the family jewels uh, leaked to the public in parts of it in different ways. You had the church and Pike committees, you had the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But then at the end of all that, you get Reagan elected. And that's a permanent shift in American politics up to this point. And every president since has been Reagan. And so you have to ask, why did this happen? And so going back and looking at Watergate, I mean, history is interesting because you can always go back further and add more. We can go all the way back, all the way back to the Big Bang or something like that, right? I mean, I guess they didn't have history, but you get what I mean. There's always something that happened before whatever happened and then something else happened, right? But timeline is useful in Watergate. And so the point that I'm going to start it from, well, let me go back just a little bit further and add one other interesting note that's that I don't have on the timeline here, but it's 1970, Okay. And that is related to American Exception because we published this article. But the in 1970, the exposure of the CIA's role in the heroin traffic was actually a major scandal and had and, and sent shockwaves through uh, the clandestine apparatus of the government, but not in ways that we totally understand because it's all being done behind the scenes. But it is relevant. And this was the Peter Dale Scott version of it. So there's two real versions that come out to deal with this scandal. There's Peter's version, which says the CIA was involved with this even before there was a CIA. And it was the, the social register. These social register figures were involved. And these are economic elites, 
based around New York City who were involved in certain aspects of the uh, post-World War II heroin traffic that was established, you know, under reestablished under the Truman administration during that time period, but not by the government, by people who were ex-government uh, officials like William Donovan and then ex-British intelligence people like William Stevenson and the World Commerce Corporation, which was funded by people like Nelson Rockefeller. So really elites. And, and some of that wasn't in the article, the 1970 article that came out in Peter's books over decades, right? Especially American War Machine has a great, had a lot of stuff on this. But Peter was exposing this and it was going to come out in Ramparts. And we know the CIA was involved in surveilling Ramparts at that time. So another thing to point out is that, which people, we know this history more, but it's really important to, to notice this, is that Nixon's crimes and the crimes that Nixon went down for were relatively pedestrian and kind of um, almost like seemed like technicalities that they get them on. I mean, the smoking gun tape is not, that's a very funny metaphor for it because it isn't, what's on the tape is not so spectacular and it's not really anything that is would be high up there in terms of the crimes of U.S. leaders, you know, in the decades since the end of World War II. I mean, it's just even Eric Foner. Did you read Foner? When, when, was Foner the guy that wrote your high school history textbook when you took U.S. history? You probably took AP U.S. history, right? Uh, I don't think we read. Fon I don't remember, though. <laughs> OK, so, well, Foner, um, I would hope, think I would guess you would have remembered if it was Foner. And he's actually pretty good in some ways. It gets when you get into the Imperial post-World War II era, you know, he pulls a lot of punches or he doesn't go there as much, which is, you know, that's a choice. But he wrote that Nixon, Nixon, you know, was convicted over or not convicted, convicted in, the, in public opinion and in the eyes of Congress before he resigns. Uh, and that his defense later was like, when the president does it, it's not illegal. And even Foner says, well, he has a point. Turns out the state was breaking all these laws and so on kind of routinely. But it doesn't really dwell on it, whereas I dwell on that a lot. So this this aspect of it, very important. And this is the, this is the sort of backdrop for uh, the um, for what happens with Watergate. And the other item that I don't have on the timeline, but that I'll, they will also mention, which I think is very relevant, is the end of the Bretton Woods system in 1971. The U.S. takes uh, goes off the gold standard and essentially defaults on Bretton Woods because it was an agreement between other nations that if they accumulated dollars, they could be traded uh, $35 for an ounce of gold. And then the U.S. says, well, we can't do that anymore. We don't have the gold. They spent all this money that other people, you know, accepted on this basis. And then when it when the U.S. really overextends itself in one of the moments, really, one of the greatest moments of just pure imperial assertions of power, the U.S. says, eh, we're not going to do that anymore. All that gold we owe you, we don't owe you that anymore. We can give you U.S. Treasury bills instead. So this is a, a quite an astounding thing a, and a real, uh, a naked, if not obvious, uh, assertion of just top-down power uh, in the global political system. It's just, it's, it's imperialism, but, you know, given the shape of corporate the corporate modern economy, it like doesn't seem as gangsterish as like, you know, Genghis Khan coming in and chopping off people's heads. But it was, you know, that was a, a real blunt unilateral assertion of, of power. Um, and that's what, and that's why the, the treasury secretary at the time, or the, maybe the succeeding one, uh, Connolly, who was this, the guy who was in the car with Kennedy when he got shot 
he later said, yeah, it's our currency, but it's your problem. So the U.S. really didn't care about even appearing diplomatic about this, apparently. So this is going on. It's a time where a lot is in flux in the United States. So getting into the timeline. June 13, 1971, the first Pentagon Papers article in the New York Times uh, appears, and this leads to the creation of Nixon's enemies list uh, and paranoia over leaks. Nixon, at first, doesn't care that much about the Pentagon Papers because he figures, well, these are mostly Democratic administrations. You know, the Diem assassination happened under Kennedy and LBJ entered the war, so this doesn't really hurt us that much. Uh, Kissinger actually talks him up and gets uh, Nixon really worried in, uh, about this after a fashion. Additionally, as Dan Ellsberg was talking about recently on the podcast, uh, it was he, Nixon was also worried about the possibility that Ellsberg had things like National Security Council uh, documents that, Nick, that would have been directly relevant to Nixon, would have been possibly very damaging. So this, this takes place around this time in 1971. June 7th, a few days later, um, not really related to Ellsberg, but, you know, in a bigger sense, all part of the Vietnam thing and what we were just talking about with the drug angle. June 17, 1971, Richard Nixon declares war on drugs. Now, this is really significant because Nixon himself was backed by the China lobby going all the way back to his first run for Congress uh, and the, his, his rise to national prominence. He was backed by what was called the China lobby. Uh, people in East Asia who were really anti-communist and connected to the KMT, the Kuomintang, uh, who was the real beneficiary of the drug trafficking operations in Southeast Asia that the CIA sanctioned and created. And so 1970, this starts to come out slowly. The big book on it wouldn't come out until 72. And the other book, Peter's book, was delayed on purpose uh, to keep it from competing, presumably, with the limited hangout version of, of Alpha, Al McCoy, which I don't think was written with by Al with that necessarily in mind. He's judicious about it, but it kind of functioned that way. But this, this is happening during this time period. Richard Nixon is declaring war on drugs and looking to shut these things down. And while he has been a beneficiary of these forces, this to me is a real mystery what Nixon actually thought was the role of these entities or what. But regardless, he starts to put together units to replace the corrupt Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs that had been more or less complicit through not you know, going after these, these people uh, in the heroin connection that existed up until that point. And so he was going to replace them with people more loyal to the White House. And he brought in people like Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, and they were involved in drug enforcement in different ways. And, which is alarming because Hunt was very much, you know, uh, he was in Kunming, China, which is notorious, uh, corrupted by, you know, drug connections and so on. And Nixon is sort of playing with kind of fire here by uh, looking to consolidate drug counter narcotics and intelligence gathering operations more under direct control of the White House. And uh, he, this is going on at a time when He's worried about CIA intelligence reports also that aren't saying exactly what they want to say. Like this is a recurring theme in the American presidency that the CIA is not cooperative, doesn't give you the intelligence you want. They want presidents want to politicize intelligence and the CIA has its own agenda and or they want to have accurate intelligence, some combination of those things. So Nixon really wanted to overhaul the Central Intelligence Agency. 
and they knew this. So and one of the plumbers, the plumbers are this unit that's set up under the committee to reelect the president. And they are supposedly, like you say, plumbers like to plug leaks or whatever. But they were also involved, maybe even more so, you could say, is they were looking for things to leak. Like they were saboteurs of the pipes rather than the repairmen for the pipes that were leaking uh, because they wanted to find dirt on people so that they could slander them in the public. Uh, you know, in the public eye. And so one of the first things they do is they burglarize the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, Dr. Uh, Fielding. And this is on September 9th, 1971. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to some of these issues over the course of this discussion. And this probably a couple episodes here, though, this will span. So October 10th, 1971, just a month after the um, breaking into Ellsberg's office and a few months after the um, initial leak of the Pentagon Papers and Nixon declaring war on drugs. Nixon uh, goes and has a conversation with Richard Helms, who's the head of the CIA, and he's asking for things related to the JFK assassination. He says, uh, first, this is my information. Second, I need it for a defensive reason, reasons for negotiation. The who shot John Angle. I need to know what is necessary to protect, frankly, the intelligence gathering and the dirty tricks department, and I will protect it. I've done more than my share of lying to protect you, and I believe it's totally right to do. So Helms stonewalls him on all this and uh, doesn't ever give him these files. But this is quite, there's a lot of, uh, it's pregnant with implications, this whole meeting, because this is a really fundamental issue for our system of governance and, and democracy in general is if you're going to have this sort of secretive apparatus with the ability to act with, you know, the license to kill with the ability to act with legal immunity, then who is going to control it? Is it more disturbing that it would be in the hands of a, a president or is it more disturbing that it would be in the hands of just unelected bureaucrats or government officials who with, with loyalties to who knows what kind of interests in society uh, besides their own bureaucracy? The latter is what we seem to have. And this is something that's hard to justify on its merits to say that, like, you know, it would be a, all of these things would be fine as long as like it wasn't in the hands of the president, that it would be in this unelected body that operates in total secrecy. This is a real conundrum. And Nixon kind of was really getting to the heart of it is like, is the president even to know what the other presidents were doing? Like, who should be outranking the president in terms of like secrecy? It's a. Uh, it's a, I mean, supposedly the president can declassify things. This is coming up again, right, with Donald Trump. Has the ability to declassify things when he wants to. But um, what, 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 if the pre, what about these cases where the president can't get the material from the, the, the spooks? This is uh, really something serious to think about. And the president doesn't even know it himself, like who, who killed the president. And Nixon himself was brought into Dallas on the day that Kennedy was killed for this conference. And you really have to wonder why that was, uh, what that was done for. I don't think that Nixon had anything to do with the Kennedy assassination. In fact, I'm pretty sure that he didn't because he's really baffled about this and wants to get into it, wants to discover what happened. So at the yeah, same time, a lot of the figures were people that he had been meeting with to, you know, to get Castro. And so he's fully aware that uh, I, I think he has a pretty good idea because there's a whole lot of familiar faces 
Um, but as some people have pointed out, I mean, if if the idea was to send a message to Nixon and Ford and funny enough, HW more or less of all these future presidents who are just sort of in the area, um, you know, I, I think the point you're making is the ex- uh, the exception trumps even the even the president. And I think that has to be made clear to him. And, and uh, at, at one point, uh, McCord himself, who, who's one of the, the plumbers, says that firing Helms, as you're talking about the sort of the power grab for Nixon trying to reorganize the CIA. Um, and as we'll get into, it's kind of like all the different ways that he's trying to get in information, get intelligence on the intelligence people. Um, uh, McCord says every tree in the forest will fall. It'll be a scorched desert. And I think sort of what it comes down to and what what it ends up with it getting privatized and and uh, another sort of outcome that that you talked about a little bit before was privatizing the CIA and moving it overseas. And part of that process is we'll just burn it down before we'll let anybody really get to anything. And so as we'll talk about, I mean, files get burned, every record that that is, you know, really sensitive disappears. And in the end, it really just, you know, they go scorched earth rather than let someone else take over the organization and, and sort of the power structure there. And so I think Nixon's power grab is sort of a a mutual destruction of the white of his White House, but also the sort of reign of the CIA as a as an institutional uh, hegemon within the, this sort of governmental network. Yeah, the outcome is very interesting and it complicates any idea of trying to put this purely on like the CIA as acting in the best interests of the CIA. I think you pretty much have to resort to looking at social forces to understand what was happening with the CIA really throughout the history of the CIA, but especially during this time period. So this is like when the there's that Leonard Cohen song or line reasons like it's the, the, there's there's cracks in everything and that's how the light gets in. This is very true for Watergate. I would and I would guess that was one of the things where he's kind of influenced by Peter's writing uh, when he wrote that because they were such good friends, right? Um, and that this sort of turf war uh, among the uh, the American elites at the time was was being hashed out with Watergate. So after Nixon. Um, in 1971, has this meeting with the last thing I mentioned was the Nixon meeting in October of 71, where he's trying to talk to Helms. And he had sent people over there earlier, like maybe Halderman, Halderman or Ehrlichman, to try to get these Bay of Pigs files and such. And they got stonewalled as well, which I think was why Nixon decided to go over himself and try to do this. So this brings us into 1972, which is an election year. And a journalist named William Haddad wrote to Larry O'Brien, uh, who was working in Watergate, that there was surveillance going on, really high-tech surveillance of the Democrats being carried out by a group affiliated with the White House uh, called the November Group. This is in this is detailed in Hogan's Secret Agenda. Um, that's on March 23, 1972. April 26, 1972, Haddad uh, meets in New York City with DNC people, and he says McCord and Liddy specifically. Uh, with, along with some Cubans, are going to break into the DNC headquarters. So they're warned about this. They're tipped off about this. Uh, a week later, J. Edgar Hoover dies. Okay, this is He's been there for decades. Uh, Hoover was the guy who, before there was an FBI, really was the person running the Palmer raids, which were a response to the Red Scare right after World War I. So that's how long Hoover goes back. It's now 1970. Uh, and and Hoover's in in his seventies, 
and he he dies. So I'm very subject of the Nixon power grab. I think this this is a big thing with Hoover that uh, the Houston plan is sort of a big point of conflict there uh, before before Hoover dies, that Nixon sees him as sort of getting in his way. And and funny enough, I, I mean, the Houston plan is this thing that Nixon wanted to essentially use the CIA, FBI and military intelligence to do surveillance, uh, to do a quote, surreptitious entry or burglaries and uh, black bag jobs. And Hoover says no. And of course, Hoover is not exactly a bastion of civil rights and, uh, and, you know, right to search and seizure and everything. Uh, instead, he has a problem with it because he thinks that they're treading on the FBI's world. And he's basically saying, that's supposed to be, you know, that's our turf. And so again, we, we sort of see these points of conflict, and the sort of inter- inter-institutional war that's happening running up to you know everything blowing up with the burglaries and hoover dying right in the middle of it uh, is taking out a really big power center that is sort of a counterweight to the cia and to nixon uh in sort of the the interplay at this point yeah and i would say that i don't it's hard to figure out whether there was conflict so much like this seems to be a conflict between it, to a degree, between some of Nixon's plans for centralizing control of operations in the White House, but also it dates back to other issues that Hoover had with the CIA in general and uh, the way that it was created. Hoover didn't want the CIA to be created, um, but ultimately he lost out in a power struggle. And uh, this so the CIA was created, but it's not supposed to operate domestically, but it does all the time anyway. And Hoover can't really do anything about it. So Hoover seems to have Hoover's death, I would say, does not seem to have been fortuitous for Nixon. Hoover represented a right wing. I mean, it's you really get into like trying to you're playing kind of like classify that fascist. okay? which is a fun game we like to play if you're looking at U.S. politics and the national security state. Hoover, as Peter Dale Scott explains, was someone who an FBI represented kind of domestic uh, conservative forces that were not the same as the globalist, you know, I don't like that term exactly, but like the one world commercial elites that are, that would be uh, represented by people like, especially David Rockefeller, but then their emissaries in the government would be people like Dean Acheson, John McCloy, um, Dean, let's see, Dean Acheson, John McCloy, George Ball, you know, Henry Kissinger, um, a lot, all these people like in, in, in the JFK's administration, for example, he had, um, you know, Alan, the Dulles brothers, if I didn't say it, in JFK's administration, he had dozens of people who were in the Rockefeller brothers fund. Okay. Like they were just a huge part of the establishment and very slick Ivy league, wall street connected people. And Hoover represented something, something sort of somewhat different than that domestic producers uh, and other conservative forces that weren't quite the same as the council on foreign relations. So Hoover's dying is an op represents an opportunity for some of for people to potentially get that turf that Hoover was in control of, which was a lot of domestic uh, blackmail operations among other things and, and dirt gathered on people. So this people think I've wondered if Hoover was, was killed or not. So that, I mean, when you look at the timing of it, 
It's, a, it's extremely impactful. Now, it's possible Hoover's death was a catalyst for Watergate because it set off more power structures over the clandestine state and the entire spectrum of, of criminal governing practices, right? So his death is important for the way Watergate plays out either way. But, you know, people have wondered, was he actually killed? Did he represent a force that, could have, that would have like, not allowed Watergate to go forward the way that it did? And uh, so some people have wondered if he was killed. I know someone who is a, a researcher who's a, who's very uh, hardworking, diligent researcher who spoke to someone in the CIA, a former officer uh, or agent, but uh, somebody who, who they know did have a connection with the CIA and I believe was employed by them. But uh, I, I'm not going to have to I'm not going to go too much into the details of any of the people involved here. And this is totally hearsay uh, that you should you know, take with a grain of salt. I'm not saying this is what I think happened, but this person told a researcher, this CIA person said that in the agency that, that they thought that Hoover was killed by James McCord himself, which seems too, too uh, outlandish to be too crazy to be true, but I, I don't 100% rule it out. Uh, and that his nickname was Zap Man in the agency and that uh, he would he could kill people with like a, a pin that would like release some sort of gas or something like that. Now, I, I tend to think that, that that's a, these people are not trustworthy that tell these kind of stories. Like anytime you get into anything involving CIA officers and they start talking about things in these areas, they're prone to like exaggeration or hearsay or whatever. But let's set that aside, whether it could possibly be true or not. The fact was that like Hoover was his death had great consequences for the way Watergate plays out it could have been i think if he would have lived he would have tried to protect nixon and it wouldn't have come down the way that it did uh, because i don't think that hoover was friendly to the forces that were ultimately behind watergate so you know make it that what you will now um this leads to, so this is in 1972 the 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 plumbers are involved in a lot of break-ins that are probably never adjudicated there's a ton a whole slew uh dozens and dozens of break-ins around D.C. at this time period that are never solved. So they were probably involved in a whole lot of things that we have not discovered yet. Uh, and Hoover's death it takes place during the midst of all this. So Hoover dies in, on May 2nd. We, they already know that the Nixon administration is engaging in these kind of dirty tricks, black bag operations and so on. The Democrats have been informed about this. And uh, they supposedly don't do anything about it. But, you know, it, it begs the question as to what they did know. So May 28th, you have the first attempt to get into the Watergate at the DNC. Um, but they don't they don't make it in, but it gets reported somehow. It does get reported. And but they're, they're not able to 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 make it into the into the DNC. First successful burglary is on June 8th, 1972. Uh, and this one is reported. Uh, and on the next day, uh, you have uh, the, uh, what Hogan identifies as a real important part of Watergate that was overlooked by most people. I think Jerry Lucas or Lukacs, whatever the guy's name is, uh, he wrote a book on the Watergate uh, about it. It's one of the top sort of official stories, official versions of Watergate. Like it's not all the president's men, but it's probably a little better than that. And um, he, he mentions this angle, but he doesn't go deep into it. Hogan goes very far into it. 
also on June 9th, on June 9th, the day after the, the first Watergate burglary that doesn't get people arrested. Um, but but actually was a successful break in. You have this Washington Star article that appears Capitol Hill call girl ring. And this results in uh, it, it talks about a guy named Philip Bailey, a really scandalous fellow who had been arrested for violating the Mann Act, I think, of transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes. And this was a, a young college, a young co-ed, I think, at the University of Maryland who had um, sex with a bunch of men at a party with Bailey. And then some of the men said that they paid Bailey for it. And uh, she was said that this was like somehow against her was against her will in some way, um, which, I'm, you know, I don't I have no opinion on what really happened there. But Bailey, I could believe almost anything. Um, and this leads to an arrest of this guy and a search of all of his. He was a lawyer and a search of all of his um, offices and, and files and so on. And then uncovers this call girl ring. Uh, Dean, who is John Dean, who is part, you know, a lawyer for the president, the president's legal counsel advisor to him on legal matters, calls prosecutor to the White House, John Rudy, uh, to ask him about these things. And so they get more. He wants to figure out what happened. There's one woman involved who is uh, who works in the white in the executive branch somewhere and she's fired. And there's another unnamed White House official. I think it's a White House lawyer, they say, who is involved in this sex ring. And we never find out who that is. So when I get Jim Hogan on here, I'm going to ask him if he has any ideas of who that might be. Uh, it's because it would be notable, you know, who was in his in his book. So that same day, Magruder declares that a second break-in might be needed. And Hogan thinks that these two things are, are related for a number of reasons. So this is in June of 1972 that th- this is happening. Okay. A few days later, June 12th, 1972, Magruder tells Liddy about the need for a second break-in for dirt, okay? So he, they, they know that they're going back in and that they're looking for dirt. That's the plan. So June 18th, you have the infamous fateful night, uh, June, 19, June 18, 1972, five persons arrested burglarizing the DNC. And this is, of course, what ultimately undoes the president. But if you look at the timeline, it's June. The election isn't until November, so it's a something that appears in the paper, but they don't really. It doesn't impact the election at all. Um, Nixon uh, wins by a landslide, by a huge margin, crushes McGovern, and they had used some dirty tricks to help to get McGovern to be the nominee in the first place. Kind of like the Democrats, where they, they were so clever, they got to pick the nominee in 2016. They pick a totally clownish character because he'd be easier to beat, right? The Pied Piper strategy of Hillary Clinton. Like, let's get the media to really talk up the Trump campaign so that they have a clown running to run against, and then they lose to the clown. But in this case, Richard Nixon's plan worked, and they really crush McGovern in the, in the election. So shortly after that, November 20th, 1972, Richard Nixon tells Richard Helms that he won't be the, the director of central intelligence anymore. And he says, but, you know, this is uh, we just want to go in a different direction. And you were a holdover from a Democratic administration, yada, yada. Sorry to be nice about it. Helms uh, turns down the USSR ambassadorship saying, oh, it would be kind of improper for a former CIA guy to go over there. You know, it might not be right. I think uh, somewhere else. How about Iran? And so Nixon says, well, OK. Um, 
Now, the burglars are in jail at this time, and they are being paid hush money by uh, Nixon, forces connected to Nixon. Uh, and the courier for some of these hush, this hush money is Dorothy Hunt. And she dies in a plane crash uh, carrying $10,000, United Airlines 553, on December 8th, 1972, which is a strange thing. It's, she's, a lot of people believe that the plane was sabotaged. I believe Carl Oglesby writes some about this in the Yankee Cowboy War. A guy named Sherman Skolnick, who was, uh, you know, a guy who wrote on sort of cons- political intrigues and criminality back in the seventies. He writes about this as well. So this was, um, this was a, a plane crash that many people regarded as uh, suspicious. A lot of people think that Dorothy Hunt was killed um, because of her role in Watergate and she shows, so she dies and this is uh, devastating for Hunt of course, but it also seems that the stakes are kind of high about this because the president hasn't even been sworn in for a second term. And here you have all of this intrigue going on. A few weeks later, December 22nd, the 21st, McCord writes that letter to Jack Caulfield uh, that you mentioned. And he says where he says, every tree in the forest will fall if this is laid at the foot of the CIA and if they fire Helms. The Helms has already been fired. Whether McCord knew that or not, he was already fired. And this really begs the question of what was Hunt, what was McCord doing? Why is he saying this? Because he gets arrested and then he's talking about how they better not fire um, Richard Helms, you know, who was someone that McCord was close to. And, you know, it begs the question of like, was McCord, uh, you know, people have speculated about the burglary itself. I go into more detail about this in uh, American Exception and also Jim Hogan does in Secret Agenda that McCord really was a, an operator and he bungled this in such a way that it seems like he meant to get caught. And here he is saying like, he better not fire Nixon. So it, it does beg the question of like, was, if they were trying to get caught, was, was the, the and they, these burglars are in jail. The uh, plumbers are in jail. McCord's in jail who knows a lot of secrets and hunt as well connected to the CIA. Was this uh, a way to, have leverage over Nixon to uh, in case they needed it, you know, that is a pretty reasonable suspicion to have, especially when he starts talking about this. Okay. So that's before Nixon's even his second term has even begun. Okay. January 30th, 1973 McCord and Liddy are convicted of conspiracy burglary and illegal wiretapping and Helms destroys MK ultra files and CIA taping system documents okay so the cia had their own taping system just like nixon would which would infamously come back to bite him in the ass uh but helms is able to destroy all his tapes and then you know all okay off to tehran now i'm, I'm out of here he also destroys all the mk ultra files which were you know massive and documented uh, a whole swath of criminal of CIA intelligence sh- chicanery involving mind control, dosing people with acid, you know, uh, mind control assassins, um, all, all kinds of craziness that would have been in, all involved in MK Ultra. Um, and so this is in heat in 1985, I think it was. Helms admitted uh, that this was due to fears that Watergate was that the Watergate burglary was going to be pinned on the CIA somehow. So this is, to me, suggests a lot of foreknowledge about all of this. I mean, 
what does, what gets Nixon into trouble is the smoking gun tape, which I could have put on there and on the timeline. But that's also in the summer of 1972, where he's saying, like, essentially, let's try to get the CIA to tell the FBI to back off this investigation, tell them that it has to do with some, like, hanky-panky, nothing to do with us, CIA covert operations. It could spill the whole Bay of Pigs thing. In reality, it's pretty reasonable for what Nixon says, given the way that Washington operated. What Nixon said about it being some kind of CIA operation, that's what he, that seems to be what he actually thought. He didn't think they were there. He doesn't give any indication that he ever ordered the burglary. Nobody has really come up with any evidence suggesting that. It doesn't seem that he did. And he seems genuinely surprised by it. Uh, and so, you know, it would, it's very interesting that Helms, he does comply with them a little bit. He tells the, the FBI to back off for a little bit, a couple of weeks, but then he, actually reverses this more or less and doesn't want to get involved. This is, uh, this is unusual. It's unusual for the, the CIA not to want to protect the president. And it, it, it really becomes, that becomes even more suspicious when you consider that these CIA guys are in jail and they have a lot of secrets that just for the CIA's own institutional interests, it would want to keep these guys from talking. So why did Helms not uh, cooperate completely with that? None of these characters, none of these actors that we see now are uh, that are involved in this. Okay, because let's let's look at them: CIA, and the FBI, and the Washington Post. <laughs> none of these are anti-imperialist, uh, pro-rule of law forces. Like the CIA and the FBI commit all kinds of crimes uh, for empire and for the establishment, and then typically the Washington Post reports on them in uh, basically the way that these entities would want such things to be reported on. So, you know, why? Why Why did it happen this way? <laughs> this is what we've got to try to, to uh, focus on. So February 7th, 1973, the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities kicks off, and uh, they're going to investigate to look into Watergate. This is like the Irvin Committee, Sam Irvin, right? March 17th, James McCord, one of the plumbers, former CIA officer, uh, sends a letter to Judge Sirica saying that uh, people have perjured themselves and he uh, really wants to elaborate on this and that he, he doesn't want this blamed on CIA and so on. So this is very interesting. McCord was a guy who was known for being very dedicated to the mission of national security and so on. Why is he doing this? But he, he is. March 22nd, Richard Nixon orders John Dean to write a report on Watergate. Uh, he, and, and John Dean is worried that he's going to be scapegoated for this because he was involved in some of these discussions about what the plumbers would be doing beforehand and in how Nixon should respond to this and that aspect of it. So he doesn't want to get scapegoated. He never finishes the report. Uh, he starts to, in April 6th, on April 6th, 1973, Dean starts to cooperate with the Watergate prosecutors. So he actually more or less flips for the prosecution. Um, 1973, and we're going to get more into this later uh, because Peter thinks it's important and I want to talk about it a little bit too. Uh, there's a, 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 a call from the D.C. FBI field office to Chicago Today newspaper and they had been uh, writing stories about this guy named Stevens, who claimed to be the recipient, the, the intended recipient of 
Dorothy Hunt's hush money. Okay, so the FBI is like getting involved in this part of the case, which we'll talk about more. This might seem like a random small thing, which it, it may be. It's hard to say. But, but it, it, because of the conversations we're going to have with Peter and Jim later, I want to, I want to mention it now. We'll try to get into some of the, these details also beforehand so that the conversation later makes sense. Uh, April 30th, 1973, Haldeman Ehrlichman and another guy named Klein, Klein Deinst resign. Uh, and Dean gets fired. So this is the Nixon administration trying to do damage control. Oh, there's this little scandal. Looks like some people are going to have to resign. Uh, and hopefully this will be the end of it. Okay. This is something that happens regularly uh, whenever there's a little scandal. So people resign over like Iran-Contra and other issues. Uh, then you hope that that's sufficient and people move on. May 9th, 1973, Lou Russell is placed under subpoena by the Irvin Committee. Uh, Lou Russell had been a collaborator, co-conspirator of the plumbers, and especially James McCord. Uh, and his story is very fascinating, as we'll get into later. Uh, Nixon's, also on May 9th, 1973, uh, Nixon's new uh, director of central intelligence, who had replaced Richard Helms, uh, he orders the director of operations, William Colby, to compile the fam- what becomes known as the Family Jewels File. So in May of 1973, Nixon realizes, Nixon and Schlesinger realized that there were more connections between the plumbers and the uh, CIA. And so Schlesinger issues a directive calling for the compilation of what came to be known as the CIA's family jewels. Okay. This is the way that the National Security Archive, uh, which is the website run by George Washington University by like Peter Kornblue. They write, in response to revelations that CIA veterans Hunt and McCord had received agency assistance with their CRP, Committee to Reelect the President, Dirty Tricks, DCI Schlesinger issued a May 9th, 1973 directive calling for the compilation of what came to be known as the CIA's family jewels. Okay, by the time Colby had been uh, named as Schlesinger's successor, because Colby becomes the director of Central Intelligence later, he had accumulated a, an almost 700-page notebook of memos. Um, and then Schlesinger goes on to become uh, an unpopular CIA director because he's really trying to clean house at the CIA. I mean, he really fires a lot of people. They had to put a camera near the portrait of of James Schlesinger in Langley because so many people wanted to, like, you know, vandalize it. Uh, but this is because Nixon is going to war with the CIA. I mean, this is really notable that he's that this is happening. This shows that like Nixon was blank, was blaming the CIA for this in some capacity. He felt like they were involved. So he, they tried to dig up all this dirt on the CIA. Even the Washington post under Trump wrote in an article uh, that I recall reading that no president has tried to take on the CIA since Richard Nixon. Uh, and you got to wonder why is the post writing that? Like it's true, but it's like, are they writing this to send a message to Nixon or to Trump? Cause uh, Chuck Schumer said something similar on Meet the Press, right? That famous quote where he says, the CIA can get back at you six ways from Sunday, Mr. President. You don't want to mess with them. Okay, these, these are things that even somebody as thick-headed as Trump would have to understand, right? So this is very notable that Nixon's trying to go after him. May 14th, 1973, there's another Chicago, there's a, the, there's a, the first, of, I guess, Chicago Today story appears about Stevens. So I should go back and get the chronology here. Was the the DCI field office is calling them previously, and then they write one. So what's the relationship between those two things? I'm hoping 
Peter can explain this to me. This is included on Peter's timeline, and uh, I'm hoping that he can clarify what this means when he recovers from COVID. So does this suggest that they were planting the Chicago Today stories or that they wanted to get on top of them? I don't know. Very weird. But um, this, the Stevens thing is notable. The reason that he is a potentially explosive character is that he had provided McCord with communications equipment to communicate with a super top secret network of satellites. Okay, and this is where it starts to, it looks like this is a link to potentially very explosive information uh, when you know more of the background of McCord and such related to the U.S. COG, Continuity of Government Operations, the Doomsday Project, that's sort of overriding network uh, with great authority and super secret that can assert itself in ways that we don't really even understand. They're like kind of like the exception in the United States, the ability to break the law. It's like, yeah, the FBI and the CIA are given these kind of powers, but COG seems to be given even, even more secretive and more overriding authority to the point that we don't even really know what they do. It's very opaque the way that they emerge in these stories, but this is a part of Watergate and Secret Agenda has very tantalizing bits of information about this. This is what Peter remarked on recently when he read it. He goes, this is a treasure trove of information when he reread it. He read it 40 years ago, right? But then he reread it again here at age 93. You had to love Peter. And uh, he said, this is a treasure trove of information. And then he sent me some emails about this stuff. It's really, really great. This is happening in 1973, which is when the majority of Watergate plays out really is in 1970. 72, obviously, is when the arrest is. 73 is when there's this struggle over all this. Okay, May 15th, 1973, Mark Felt resigns after a beef with a superior over alleged leaks. Um, and Mark Felt is the person credited with being Deep Throat, although it seems more clear that Deep Throat was a composite character and that other it couldn't have been one person and not just Felt. Besides this, also worth mentioning that Mark Felt was a disreputable character himself who ran a ton of, of COINTELPRO operations, black bag operations, was not someone who could plausibly say that he's scandalized by any of the stuff related to Watergate. In March, March 16, or May 16th, 1973, second Chicago Today story about Stevens. Um, this, so this is, these are small and they're not in big outlets, but they're appearing in the press. And this has got to be sending shockwaves to some people because it does touch on COG. This is very secretive. And part of the reason that we know more about the Stevens case is that Stevens went to the FBI saying that he thought his life was in danger uh, because of the way Howard Hunt or Hel Dorothy Hunt died. Whether that was smart or not, whether he was on anybody's radar before, who knows? But he, because he did that, we, haven't, we have some idea. We, have, we know more about his actual connection to these events. And they are... Uh, very pregnant with potential implication. Okay, May 16th and 17th, the wee morning hours, so very late at night. Uh, you know, is this related to the Stevens issue? Quite possibly, I think. Uh, Woodward and Deep Throat meet. We don't know which Deep Throat this is, right? Or who it really is. Is it Mark Felt? We kind of don't think so. It says, uh, everyone's life is in danger. Okay. He was saying that the that it really wasn't about the crime uh, or even the cover-up, that it was really about the entire covert operations apparatus of the U.S. government. And it's all, it, it, it could be a bloodbath and people are going to start dying. Uh, it's going to get crazy. 
this is in you know May 16th, 1973, same time that this story is appearing about Stevens. So it's this gets into some really explosive areas. Why why was all this so explosive? Why did Watergate threaten to blow up so much stuff? You know, it's this is worth looking at more. We'll we'll come back to this idea. Okay, May 18th, which is just uh, you know the next couple days later, a day later, if it's the night of the 17th morning of the night of the 16th morning of the 17th that you get this warning from Deep Throat, everybody's life is in danger, everybody's going to die. Um, well, May 18th, Lou Russell, one of the co-conspirators, McCord's partner in crime, he suffers a heart attack and goes into the hospital. Um, and three hours later, McCord begins his first day of public testimony before the Irvin Committee in the Senate. Okay, so the Lou Russell um, gets released from the hospital about a month later, and he tells his daughter that he was poisoned. Someone came into their house and switched his pills. Um, Dean himself testifies on June 25th, implicating Nixon, Mitchell, and saying that, the, uh, that there's a cancer growing on presidency. Uh, but there's no proof of anything that Dean is saying. It, it, it's really a he said, she said thing. And that would have been where it stood, except for something else. Okay. After Dean says this, um, they're basically, while in the process of deposing Dean and so on, uh, you have this, uh, there's a request for the dates that Dean uh, had met with the president um, and lead special counsel, Fred J. Buzzhart. They asked him to provide a document to the to Fred Thompson, you know, the guy who went on to Law and Order later, if you recall, uh, that this could maybe be used against Dean to try to get more more leverage on Dean. The document contained almost verbatim quotations, uh, and so when they saw this, they thought there must be a taping system if they're able to provide this stuff. So they start questioning potential witnesses about a taping system uh, when they go on this. Using this spiderweb model set up by Carmine Bellino, who was a Kennedy person who had investigated like uh, Jimmy Hoffa and stuff, they begin identifying potential witnesses who might have had a link to a taping system, and uh, they eventually find one later who was Alex Butterfield, who'd left the White House in March of 73 for the FAA, and he had up been, before that, Haldeman's deputy. Okay, and he's an interesting character in his own right. So July of 1973, Russell, Lou Russell, has a second heart attack, and he dies, July 2nd. July 8th, uh, Russell's friend and co-conspirator, John Leon, suffers a fatal heart attack on the eve of a press conference organized by Republican National Committee Chair George H.W. Bush. Among other things, Leon was going to reveal that the so-called September bug on Maxie Wells' telephone was his and that it had been stolen by Lou Russell so that it might be planted uh, and discovered by the FBI. Okay, this is probably one of the craziest parts of this whole thing. So I want to like slow down for a second just so we can, because we just hit into a lot of things right here. First, we have RNC chair George H.W. Bush, a familiar character for everybody. Uh, you know, uh, uh, anyone who's read Russ Baker knows that he tries to kind of turn this part of the narrative into Bush playing a pretty key role and that maybe he was part of how John Dean ended up the White House counsel to then turn on them and have the tapes come out. Regardless of how much, uh, I guess, agency you give to Bush specifically, 
if you want to just talk a little more about who are Russell and John Leon and, you know, within a week of each other, in the middle of the entire thing, in the first week of July 1973, as everything is burning down around Richard Nixon, these two guys have heart attacks, one a second heart attack, but both of them die right as things are starting to come out, right as they're about to expose some things that, as we'll get into, uh, are touching on some CIA operations that, uh, at least in Hogan's theory, uh, and, and maybe we can kind of close with tying some of this together as to why a lot of this is happening. But a lot of things are about to come out. Uh, what are the role that Russell and, and Leon play just a little bit before we will probably dive well, into it next time? Yeah. And so John Leon was uh, <laughs> was one of the invest was he worked for a detective agency, Allied Investigators Incorporated. Um, and one of the investigators uh, who that he that they was working with under in this capacity was Lou Russell. So in December of 71, Russell's working for a general security services, private guard service under contract to protect the Watergate offices in which the DNC was located. Um, he was also moonlighting at allied investigators looking for work that paid better. And then he finds it in March. He quits GSS to join McCord Associates, um, worked there for a time as a night guard uh, while continuing to moonlight for allied and also freelancing as a tipster for Jack Anderson, the journalist who is involved in a whole lot of intrigues here, including the uh, stories about Johnny Rosselli and that, that they were using to basically blackmail the CIA into protecting Rosselli, who was a mobster um, because he was in, he had been involved in the uh, Castro plot, the plots to kill Castro. And so he, Jack Anderson was an uh, intelligence connected person in some ways. And his, he had all these inside sources. Lou Russell also worked for him. Interestingly, Anderson gets information about the break-ins to Watergate beforehand, and he doesn't publish them. Okay, and he's he's close to Lou Lou Russell as well, uh, and is you know it's very very suspicious that he doesn't publish those. Russell is involved with these people, uh, involved with John Leon, uh, and as well. And Leon is there, going to have this press conference to talk about. Uh, Watergate, and he was going to talk about the sex angle and a whole lot of other very explosive things uh, that would have that that would have totally changed the water the way Watergate unfolded. And he dies that day. Okay, he died or he dies the night before. So this is, I mean, if he was going to reveal that the bug was his and that it had been stolen by Lou Russell so that it could be planted so that they could have more dirt on the burglars, uh, this is a blockbuster. This totally changes the way you think of it because Russell's an associate of McCord. Why is McCord planting evidence of his, of his, why is somebody connected to McCord planting evidence that uh, points to McCord's crimes? <laughs> right. And then they want to talk about it. And then Russell dies of a heart attack. And he says that they poisoned, they changed my heart medication. And then John Leon dies. Okay. Suffering a fatal heart attack. And, and, you know, as a result of Watergate, we get all these hearings later about the CIA. But one of the things that comes out, during this time period is that the CIA could had a, a silent heart attack gun, essentially. Seems irrelevant. Frozen blowfish toxin into, into a, a dart, you know, a little mini ice dart would be shot at you. It doesn't make a sound. It's electric. It goes into your, under your skin. It dissolves. You have a heart attack and it just looks like you had a heart attack. There's nothing on the, that suggests you got shot. 
because it's just a tiny prick. You would, unless you knew exactly what you were looking for, you wouldn't know what you wouldn't understand. You wouldn't know. Uh, so was Leon killed? I would, you know, that seems like such a crazy coincidence. George H. W. Bush. I mean, he's the RNC chair, so he's you know obviously protecting the Republican president would be in his interest. But George H. W. Bush and the Bush family seems to be part of the deep state that transcends really the Republican partisan politics and so on. He seems part of the dark side. They, the family seems like part of the dark side of the empire. And I, I think, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't want to have enough evidence of this already, consider the fact that when Gerald Ford comes in and you have this big shift to the right in American politics, part of that Halloween massacre that really marks this big shift orchestrated by Rumsfeld and Cheney. But one of the big replacements, big changes made at that time was firing William Colby uh, as director of the CIA because people thought he was just giving too much information to Congress and replacing him with George Bush and who is this cover-up guy, you know, who's going to be there to like uh, repair the agency and get it back into fighting shape is the plan. So this is really significant uh, and you got to try to figure this out and make sense of it. But it all seems like Leon was potentially in a position to... um, potentially save Nixon's presidency and turn this back on to the conspirators. And these are very powerful forces and uh, they, he dies. So, you know, it's, yeah, people, sure. People have heart attacks, but you know, Russell and Leon having a heart attack right in this tiny time period. uh, I I can't, I have a hard time believing that's coincidental and Leon or, um, you know, Russell himself didn't think it was Russell thought he was poisoned. So, this is around this is around the critical t- time period too, the turning point because instead of having this press conference that really could have changed the conversation uh you know you have a bug planted there to make it look like they were bugging these people when they they weren't effectively doing so at least not in the way the, the Watergate story was having it um you end up with Butterfield testifying to Congress on July 13 1973 um he says, he's asked about the taping system. He says, I was wondering if someone would ask that. There is a tape in the Oval Office. Okay. Um, and Buzz Hart, who was Nixon's lawyer or whatever, gave had given the document to Thompson with those verbatim quotes. You've got to wonder, and that's what they use to figure out that there's a taping system. You really have to wonder if, about Buzz Hart himself, he seems to have been not giving the president good advice. I believe it was him and maybe Alexander Haig who had said, don't destroy those tapes. You know, you don't want to destroy those. Nixon should have just destroyed them from the point of view of like him staying in power, but he doesn't. And so this, for the the, the year after this, once these tapes are revealed, then you basically have the last less exciting year of Watergate, which is court battles over the taping system. Nixon wants to argue executive privilege. And they say the the Supreme Court eventually decides uh, that, that they have to give up the tapes. So I believe it's a Supreme Court decision that that finds that that's that that's the outcome, but it might have been a circuit court. I'm not, I can't remember exactly. The point is Nixon's tapes coming out really that really does him in. And uh, when you, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. The CIA has a taping system and they can just get rid of it, whereas the president doesn't. But the president, so you know, should the president be allowed? I, I'm not a person who supports the the existence of an imperial presidency and so on but even i can see and the empire in general and state secrecy i find problematic and and you know 
for abuse, really ripe for abuse. I mean, I wrote a whole book on it, right? Even I would say that it's not so straightforward that you could say like, oh, yeah, the president should be surveilled. The president himself should be under constant surveillance and forced to give this this information to any investigation that comes up. I mean, this is actually it's it's not as straightforward as it would seem as villainous as Nixon was. This is actually remarkable, especially in light of the fact that the CIA seems to have been involved in a lot of this. And they do get a more or less a pass. I mean, what happens to Helms, he is convicted for perjury about a real tangential thing or lying about the involvement in the Chile coup that gets rid of Allende. But that's it. And uh, this is this is something to this is really remarkable when you think about it, that that's that that's what Nixon goes down for. Not like the fact that they can get those tapes, but then that they seize on such a technicality where you know Nixon could have per- perhaps defended himself. I think they were worried about that. That's why they bring in Gerald Ford, who was never elected to anything. I mean, the only thing Ford's known for that he's done that was really notable is helped to cover up the Kennedy assassination. And he was J. Edgar Hoover's supposed informant on the committee. And he moves the location of the magic bullet. And, uh, you know, Nixon said Spiro Agnew was his assassination insurance. But they take down Agnew in an unusual way for like some sort of bribery thing, which is like, not normally, they don't normally go after people like this for, I mean, like LBJ, for example, was involved in a Bobby Baker scandal that was probably going to blow up and take him out of the vice presidency when uh, November 22nd. Yeah. And they didn't go that day. So they didn't go into, they didn't go and take down, you know, LBJ that way because of that. Like, so why did they dig up dirt, you know, into the past to go after Agnew? And then you, you have to guess that it has to do with um, wanting to push, get get uh, Nixon out of office and have somebody in there who'd be totally pliable. I mean, that, well, that to me seems like the obvious conclusion. You heard it here first, uh, everybody. Aaron Good, supporter of executive privilege and, and secrecy mm. in the Nixon administration. But yeah, I, I, don't, I think that's I don't a key contradiction. Please don't quote me on all of that. I'm not <laughs> saying it was good. I just am saying it is at least problematic to think about. Like, should the president have to give this stuff up? Well, there's a big contradiction here because, like you were saying, there are these tapes that Helms gets rid of. And Hogan talks about this specifically, that uh, Congress is asking Helms about why would you destroy the tapes? Uh, and, and if you destroyed any after the subpoena that had to do with Watergate, then that's, you know, you're, you're not complying with the subpoena. And, and obviously, like... That would be a huge deal. And his whole defense is that, well, only me and my secretary would know. And we went through it and had nothing to do with Watergate and you have no proof. And they go, well, if the shoe's on the other foot, you also can't say that you can't prove that there wasn't anything on Watergate. So if if it depends on where you set the default and of course, it being the CIA, the default is, well, we'll take their word for it. But, uh, you know, for Nixon to get caught on that specifically and to not get rid of the tapes when he could have just done the exact same thing. And no one really could have stopped him from just saying that the tapes didn't have anything to do with the the investigation, even though obviously that would not be true. But the same is true of the CIA. It's hard to say that for years on end, Helms never talked about anything related to this, but it protected the CIA. I think the core thread of what we're talking about here, and and we've covered a lot of ground today, and I think we'll we'll sort of come back to this recap next time because that you know. We we brought up some big stuff today. We've got continuity of government stuff that that is sort of an undercurrent in in secret agenda that I think hasn't gotten 
covered enough historically because it's just these little side comments from Hogan. But we also have, you know, questions of this sort of inter-organizational conflict and specifically the CIA trying to, you know, cover its own behind on on all of this. And specifically, I, I think the narrative that we're sort of alluding to here that we'll come back to is that to some extent, Magruder and sort of the higher level Nixon people are stumbling across something that whether or not they're conscious of it, a really important CIA blackmail operation in this call, call girl um, um, ring. And what they're sort of running into or hoping that they can gain control over this operation for themselves, the CIA is looking and going, well, for one, we can't have Nixon know what we're doing here because we're controlling, you know, we have all of these high level people in DC that we have blackmail on now. And if he does get a hold of it, well, then Nixon obviously is going to use it for his own election purposes and for his own political purposes. And it's giving him the goal, like, you know, a silver bullet to just plow his way straight through Washington with whatever he wants to do. And so they see their operation as in jeopardy. And so what it boils down to, and as we'll get into, McCord specifically is playing both sides. And and as as Hogan points out, CIA agents end up basically being put as plumbers on their own operation. And so they have to sort of stall and they they sort of plead incompetence, which we see as sort of, a uh, as we said at the start, a convenient narrative even for Democrats that, well, let's not look too closely at the burglars. Yeah, they just sucked at their jobs. The real problem here is Nixon. And when you start digging into the burglars, it's clear that they have this conflict of interest because they're being put on an operation that it's in their interest to protect because it's it, it sort of trumps whatever Nixon is trying to accomplish here. And when you get down to it, then they're trying to stall. They're trying to, they accidentally don't record interviews and obviously they botch the burglaries and all of that serves to sabotage the Nixon administration, which they could never have known would actually be the thing that brought the entire administration down. Like McCord couldn't have known that the night of the second burglary, that that would be the thing to end it all. So maybe they wanted to hurt his reputation. Maybe they wanted to slow the advance of his sort of power grab in Washington. But I think the core thread here and what we'll kind of come back to and, and dig into more next time is that you know whether or not there are other agencies involved? The CIA's interests were in stopping Magruder's investigations and and like the plumbers' work to get dirt on the CIA, and as part of that, to uh, you know discredit Nixon, but also to protect their operations. And so they couldn't have known that it would tank the administration. They could know that it would defend the DNC-linked. Uh, uh, um, the DNC linked Columbia Plaza call girl ring. And so I think we'll get into a lot of that next time, but just to sort of tie together because we covered so many events, I think those are the key bombshells here that the, the traditional story goes that maybe it's a war between Nixon and the CIA at most. That's sort of what you're allowed to, to think about it. And when you dig into, like we've been talking about on, on the series about your book, uh, there are these institutional incentives that are leading to internal conflicts. And so we have the FBI arrayed against the CIA, against the Nixon White House. And then in the middle of all that, you have the media go doing everybody's legwork, and especially Bob Woodward, who uh, is suspicious in himself. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. But at the heart of it all, whether or not you want to like ascribe perfect knowledge to anyone, you have the CIA trying to cover its own ass. And that comes in the form of 
sabotaging these operations. And I think that's the core story that we're trying to get at here and that we'll we're sort of expound on next time is the way that they were willing to shoot themselves in the foot to protect the greater scheme of their operation. And that took down Nixon in the process. Yeah, that is that is that ends up being Hogan's arg- one of Hogan's theories that he puts forward to try to explain what they what they may have been doing or what some aspect of it was. Now, I I, I think that it may be it may actually be it's likely greater than that. I think it has more to do with control over the presidency in the future and the control over the institutions that they had created to run the empire without democratic oversight with a lowercase d without the potential of a of a president being able to have total command over the structure of the of the regime more or less that this this thing had been created to be for anti-democratic purposes and for a president like Nixon to come in and restructure things so that the president could have access to all the secrets and could be in control of the domestic exceptionist powers of the FBI and the CIA and to be able to command these institutions that are doing things like setting up sexual blackmail rings, that that was not just a threat to, on the surface level, it's a threat to the CIA and their own, their bureaucratic turf. But in a bigger sense, it's a threat to the most powerful forces in society, the people that the empire was actually serving and it, it, to allow them to be exposed potentially and their deeds to have been exposed, past deeds, including the Kennedy assassination, I think was on every what, what was key to the minds of the real people who were most um, decisive in terms of the outcome of Watergate. So I, I so this these are all these are all things that we'll try to lay out here and I will expand on them and we'll try to while sticking with secret agenda, which you can do because it's so brilliantly laid out the facts of the case and the facts that don't fit. Um, so this is, uh, this is something we'll get into. And I hope that people find this Watergate business as fascinating as, as I do and as important as I do, because it's really, uh, it's on the surface, it seems kind of, uh, like a strange caper and so on. And Nixon was so corrupt, so who cares, but it's, uh, it really involves like these, the, the heart of the American empire at a time when it was a transition from this Bretton Woods phase to this other right-wing Washington consensus phase. And so it's, it's really got to be looked at. You got to look at what happened to Nixon. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, picking this up again in the next episode. That's it for this one. I want to thank Seamus McGinnis for joining me here today. And I want to thank also Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio, Casey Moore for the episode art, and Mock Orange for the music. Till next time, let's keep chasing the light. <laughs>